Amen. I sure appreciate that and appreciate of all the good music that we've heard this week. It's been a tremendous blessing to me personally, and I'm thankful for it. And I'm thankful for a well of water that flows in us. That means anytime you need a drink, you got one. If you're talking about spiritual nourishment, and I'm thankful for that. If you are thirsty and it's not being satisfied, it's just because you're not drinking. And I'm thankful for, for that blessing. I want to say thanks to the church. Thank you so much. I say thank you to the pastor for allowing me to come. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate his friendship and appreciate the opportunity to preach in your pulpit. I, I do, as a pastor, understand the seriousness of that, and I'm, I'm, I'm truly grateful. I'm truly grateful for to you as a congregation. Uh, many of you have provided meals in the evening for us, and I, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. That was well done and appreciated. I'm thankful for your, your faithful attendance. I know that that... As a pastor, that means more than anything to me that my people are just in their place. I'm kind of curious. I'm not trying to shame anybody or anything. I'm just trying to encourage. How many of you were here for every uh, service of the revival? You didn't miss a single one. That's the vast majority of the hands. And I don't say that to shame anybody. I know work schedules and different things, but the vast majority of hands went up. And I thank you for supporting the meeting with your attendance. And then I also would like to say thank you for your ministry of music. Um, everybody that sang a special, that played an instrument, that sang in the choir, uh, you truly were ministering to me, and I know to many others, and so that was a, a tremendous blessing. Um, but again, thank you for your hospitality and your generosity and your, your encouragement. Um, I read today, I was reading a book, and uh, this statement came across as I was kind of preparing myself for the message, and it said this, the difference between a wise man and a foolish one is his response to what he already knows. And I, I feel, you know, there's a weight when you come and preach a revival meeting. But there is no, there, there's a weight to preach something that's really going to be helpful, that's truly going to be used to revive. But there's a pressure in that, because I'm only going to preach to you really five, six times, so how in the world can you cover the gamut of everything that needs to be said? Because really, as a pastor, your ministry is one huge sermon for years. So there's no way I can do this in three or four days. Um, but I came to the realization that, that that's the truth, isn't it? Peter said this, I want to stir you up by putting you into remembrance. And so the difference between a wise man and a foolish one is how he responds to what he already knows. And so tonight I want to just continue with this thought from John 17 and kind of wrap it up and, and put a bow on it. And I hope that we will respond in many ways, to what we already know. So would you stand with me, please? And John 17 is where we have been for the last couple of nights. In John 17, if you'll turn there if you haven't already, and I want to read the final three verses of Jesus' prayer. I'll remind you as you're turning and we're making ready there that this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. It's a prayer that we are able, by uh, inspiration and preservation of Scripture, we're able to listen in on of Jesus praying. And in this particular portion of the prayer, he's praying for believers of all generations everywhere. And these are some requests that he has for us. And they certainly apply for 2019 in Fellowship Baptist Church. Look at what it says in verse 24. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known thee that thou hast sent me. 
And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Heavenly Father, it's been a good time with this church, and I thank you for allowing me to preach to them, and I do pray that your touch would be upon me tonight. Really, you know that I'm bankrupt, and I have nothing to give them. But if you'll use me like a tool and an instrument, you can give them something that is very needed. And I know there's something that I need tonight, and I pray that you would bless me and help me. And I do pray that you would help us to apply the scripture to our lives and leave here more in love with you than when we entered. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Throughout history, there have been some strange and final requests made of people. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, I'm sure you've heard his name in history, his final request was that his head would be shaved and his hair was to be divided up amongst his friends. Okay, uh, I'd rather have some money in your will, but if you want to give me shaved hair from your head, I, I, okay. John Bowman, he was a wealthy lawyer and educator, and when he died, he had got into some spiritualism, and he became convinced that when he died, his entire family would be reincarnated together. And so from 1891 to 1950, he had set aside a trust fund that was used to pay a staff to prepare dinner every night in case he came back to life. Jack Benny, the famed entertainer, uh, this is a little bit sweeter. You guys might appreciate this, or some of you ladies anyway. When he passed away, he wanted one red rose delivered to his wife every day after his death. And one red rose was delivered to his wife every single day for nine years until she finally passed away. Oh, isn't that, isn't that sweet? Some of you, uh. All right. Anyway, moving on. These are the last words of Jesus Christ before his betrayal and crucifixion. And he doesn't make an odd request. There's no weird thing going on here, but he does make a final request. And for many of us, uh, as I come to the end of this prayer, we, we don't always know how to end a prayer. Do you always have to say, in Jesus' name, amen? You know, I, I, kinda, I remember one time I was preaching a meeting and I, I just said, in your name I pray. Or I might have said, in Christ's name. And I had a guy catch me in the lobby. And he's like, why didn't you say in Jesus' name? And I'm thinking, sir, I don't think you quite understand what the scripture is saying about that. Like, I'm all for going to the Senate floor and praying in Jesus' name. And if they tell you you can't, I mean, I get that debate and that argument. But I think you're kind of missing the, the authority that we're supposed to pray in. And here Jesus is praying. And, and he's not like a mosquito trying to round about, trying to find a place to land. And that's how a lot of people end their prayers. They just kind of repeat themselves over and over again as if God didn't hear them the first time. And they ramble on looking for a place to stop. Uh, one time I, a man said this. He said, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Goodbye. <laughs> okay, that's a great way to end a prayer. Okay, uh, but Jesus doesn't say, in my name, amen. In the Father's name, amen. He doesn't even say amen. It just abruptly stops in verse 26. And I wondered about that. Why is that way? Because we always, I mean, amen, we say it, we, 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 and, and that's fine, I think, if you're praying in a corporate sense, I mean, people want to know, do they need to raise their head or not, you know, I mean, it's, it's good to have a break-off spot, but I, I'm just saying, why didn't he say amen, why wasn't there some closure, and I believe this, I think it's because there wasn't a specific end, it was a continual conversation, to me, that's awesome, because that's what I want my life to be. 
You know, I, I love it when we sang that song. I like that old hymn, uh, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. I know it's old and it's outdated, but I really like it. The truth never gets old. And I particularly like that spot. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And I hope that I've learned to walk with the Lord. My life is just one continual walk with Him. There is no amen. There is no cessation. There, there's just a continual giving of myself to my relationship and my communion with my Father. Because that was so certainly evidenced with Jesus Christ. But he did end with some requests for his followers. And so tonight I want you to see two final requests that Jesus made for all of his followers. And let's try and apply them to our life tonight. Number one, I want you to see this, is he wants his followers to have a sense of belonging. Look what he says in verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. If you mark things in your Bible, I've marked that statement. I love that. Be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Did you know that one of the most basic needs of people is to belong? Uh, we talked about a little bit on Sunday morning that God, I believe, created us for relationship. I know a lot of people say that God created us for worship. I don't agree with that. I, and I won't fight about it, but I think we were created for relationship. And I believe that worship is a means by which we relate to God. And since we are designed to be social creatures and have relationship, there's just a sense in us of belonging. The Bible says that he has taken the solitary and he's put them in families. So there's, there's a longing and a need to be a part of a family and to be a structure that way. I, I pointed out to you that I, I believe that's why we have the scourge of gangs and bad company is because people are always trying to find somewhere to belong. It's just a basic need for us. I remember when I, I grew up playing a lot of baseball. That's probably the sport that I played the most at. I wasn't great at it, but I played it a lot. And, and I remember the very first team I was on. I didn't play t-ball, and I'm thankful for that. T-ball gets on my nerves. I got two boys, and they played t-ball. And it just makes me mad. They don't keep score. That's stupid. Are you allowed to say stupid in your church? Okay, that's stupid. I remember my youngest son, after the first game, they said, they, said uh, uh, they didn't keep score. My son said, who won, Dad? I said, I don't know. They didn't keep score. He said, we won. I said, a boy. <laughs> they won six games, and finally, I kept asking him, and then probably about the seventh game, he said, man, Dad, we lost tonight. <laughs> I don't know. They weren't keeping score. But I get so tired. I, I'm just ranting about t-ball right now. I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, but t-ball gets on my nerves because I hate it when kids care more about the snack than playing games. Do we get snack? Do we get snack? Shut up and play the game. You allowed to say shut up in here? Okay, all right. But man, I was so, I was so proud when I got to play baseball because I got a uniform. I grew up in the 80s most of my life. childhood. was born in the 70s, spent most of my childhood in the 80s. And, and uh, met my, I still remember my very first baseball team. We were called the A-team. That TV show was popular, the A-team was popular, and I like that, the A-team, we were the first team, and then I remember, we had navy blue hats with gray, we had an A, that's appropriate, we were the A-team, so we had an A right on our hat, 
gray A, and man, we had gray jerseys and right in blue letters that said the A team, and man, I, I was so excited we were going to have a game, and I put my uniform on and went to the ball field, and we were playing, and, and when I get to the ball field, what do you do? I'm looking for, where's my team? And you show up, and you, you, hey, we're on the same team, and whether you sat the bench or played the field, it didn't matter, you had a sense of belonging, you were a, a part of the team, and it's a great to have the uniform and be a part of the team, and, and, and Jesus is here emphasizing the fact that, that we have a sense of belonging, and he wants believers to to feel that and be satisfied in that sense of belonging. But I want to point something out to you. God did not just say to us that we belong to Him. Now it's true, isn't it, that we belong to Him. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives that great statement that many of us know. He said, what? Know ye not that you are not your own? You, you were bought with a price? Remember he says that? Uh, we sang about that a little bit tonight, about being redeemed, right? And he says, don't, don't you know you, you belong to him? Don't you know your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost? You belong to him. But in this passage, he's not just saying you belong to God, which you do, but he's saying you belong with God. Oh, you say, well, aren't you just being picky about words? No, no, this is a great truth. He says, I want them to be with me where I am. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment, because it might, it might make me happy if it doesn't make you happy. This is the language of, of, of the beloved longing for the lover to be in their presence. You know, there's a book in the Bible. I had one person one time... He accused me, he said, somebody told me that you won't preach some of the Bible. And what it was is he had a charismatic background, and because I didn't preach talking in tongues, he thought I didn't preach Acts chapter 2. Well, I had preached Acts chapter 2 verse by verse, actually, but I didn't go to Acts thinking, well, what? I thought to myself, well, what wouldn't I preach? And my mind went to Song of Solomon. <laughs> I hope the Lord will let me live long enough to preach through every book of the Bible, but Song of Solomon is going to be the last one I do. Why? Anybody ever read that and think, there's some weird junk going on in there? <laughs> let, let me help you, fellas. You seem like some plain blue-collar ordinary people, and that's what I like. But let me help you, fellas. If you're struggling with some poetry for your wife, stay away from Song of Solomon. I mean, no woman in here wants to be told that her hair is like a flock of goats. And no woman in here wants you coming home and saying your belly is like a heap of wheat, honey. But if you say, that book's kind of strange, <laughs> you got my vote with that. There's some different language going on in there, and it's a little bit different to find. And sometimes we tell our teenagers, don't be reading that one, you know. But I'm just saying, here's what the theme of the book is. The theme of the book is that, that there's a, a, a love affair that's going on there between a husband and wife, and they just can't wait to get in each other's presence. They want to be with one another. They want to be together. And I thought about that because it's not difficult for me to understand wanting to be with God. I am nothing. 
I'm a speck on this planet of 8 billion people. I'm of extremely little significance as far as humanity is concerned, whether that's today or in historical significance. But let me tell you tonight, there has been none that is greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist got it very right when he said, I'm not even worthy to wash your feet. I'm not even worthy to untie your shoes. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the most wonderful and the most glorious and the most fill-in-the-blank of anyone that has ever existed. He is God Almighty, eternal. He is the gracious one. He is the righteous one. He is the just one. He is every superlative that we can imagine that is positive and that is glorious. It is not difficult for me to uh, think to myself of me wanting to be with him. But what this says here is he wants to be with us. That blows my mind. You know, I, I don't want to paint an incorrect picture of Jesus tonight. I think sometimes preachers paint this picture of God as if he's up in heaven and he's, he's incomplete without humanity. He's incomplete without you. That, he, that he's this pitiful creature that just needs some company and he'll, he'll take you if he can get it. Oh no, that is not God. And that, never let me paint that picture for you of who he is and all of his sovereignty and all of his power and all of his glory and all of his might and all of his holiness. And let me never paint that picture. But in his grace and in his mercy that the choir sang about, he says, I want to be with you. He satisfies my longing. Keeps me singing as I go. You know, when God created man, his purpose was to fellowship together. That's why we were created. And can I tell you tonight, folks, with him is where we belong. This Christian, a Christian doesn't belong in this world. Look back in this prayer in verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That's why we sing. I think you all still sing it around here. We still sing it in our church. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Now, I don't belong here. And if you're a believer and you feel like you belong here, you must not be spending very much time with Jesus. As I feel right now, you go to a shopping mall and feel like you belong in this world, something wrong with you. I think many Christians have become so earthly-minded, they're no heavenly good. See, Jesus, he made it clear in this prayer, and we've, we've kind of looked at it in some of the passages we've looked at, he made it clear that the world doesn't know, they don't know truth. They don't know truth. Remember when Pilate was dealing with Jesus, he asked that question, didn't he? He said, what is truth? The world doesn't know truth. The world understands a great deal of facts. I mean, we, we do live in the information age, don't we? I mean, man, we know, uh, wow, we can find wonderful things like this. The elephant's the only mammal that can't jump. And Mr. Potato Head was the first toy advertised on television. And uh, Japan has a shortage of ninjas right now. <laughs> we know a lot of facts, we got a lot of information. But knowledge and wisdom are two different things. Information and truth are, are two different things. And our world lacks wisdom because it lacks truth. And truth comes only from knowing God. 
And I tell you tonight that through creation around man and conscious within man, man has every evidence of the existence of God, and yet we live in a world that cannot see him. And we must ask ourselves the question, why can't man see God? And I like what the old evangelist Billy Sunday said. He said, the sinner can't find God for the same reason the criminal can't find a policeman. He's not looking for him. But I want to tell you tonight, church, there's a difference between looking at a photograph of a person and actually meeting a person. Through the pages of Scripture, we see a photograph, if you will, of Jesus. We see a photograph of God. Remember Jesus said that, right? He, he, he said to those looking at him, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and we weren't privileged to be there with him physically, but oh, friend, through the pages of Scripture, we can know him and we can be near him. But I'm thankful for every morning when I can, can come and I can look at the photograph of my Lord. I'm thankful for every time I can come and I can hear somebody expound his book and I can see, see and hear them paint pictures of my Lord. But I want you to know there's, a, again, a difference of looking at a photograph and meeting the person. And we cultivate a relationship with God the same way we do with anyone else. We communicate. We spend time together. Listen, I have very much enjoyed the fellowship that I've had with many of you. I've very much enjoyed the fellowship that I've had with your pastor and some of the staff. I've very much enjoyed getting to know, communicating, talking, spending time together. Not just looking at a picture of somebody, but getting to know somebody. And that's the same thing we do with the Lord. And I'm glad that last night after the service, I, I rushed home after I was done fellowshipping here. And I went home and the first thing that I wanted to do... Man, talking about growing up when I grew up, could it, did any of you older folks like me, but could you ever fathom a day when the Jetsons would come true? I went home and I took my phone and I FaceTimed my family. And man, I, I didn't just look at pictures of them. I talked to them. I spent some time with them. Man, it, I, I tell you what, you, you know you've been, I've been married 20 years. Now I was talking to my wife, she started brushing her teeth. I was like, what in the world? But we know each other. She said, I'm getting ready for bed. <laughs> well, can I talk to my kids? They like me. But anyway. We cultivate relationship with God. God wants to be with us. And I guess you say, well, I know all that. Then what, what difference between a foolish man and a wise man is how he responds to what he already knows. How much time are you spending with the Lord? I didn't ask you how much time you're spending in church. How much time are you spending with the Lord? He wants to be with you. He wants to know you. And I, I, I don't know if I've been successful in this revival meeting or not. And I'm not saying that to try and get somebody to pat me on the back. I'm simply saying this. If I can accomplish this goal, that you as a church walk out of these doors tonight determined to spend more time with Jesus, determined to love Jesus more, determined to know Jesus more, then we have succeeded in having revival this week. See, God wants us to know who we are. That's identity. I just recently read a story about George H.W. Bush. When he was president, he visited a nursing home. I know you don't like those, but he was doing some PR tour of the nursing home. And, and he was there in a nursing home, and there was this old man shuffling through the, he's kind of shuffling through the hallway there, and the president kind of bumped into him. So he put his arm around him. You know, he's kind of a gracious man. He put his arm around him. He said, sir, do you know who I am? And that old man looked at him. He said, no, and I don't care. 
president kind of looked at him, smiled a little bit, and that old man looked at him and said, but you go up to that nurse's desk, they'll tell you who you are. <laughs> God wants you to know who you are. We're living in a world that has an identity crisis. We have identity theft. We have uh, gender identity and all of this going on. And not only does God want you to know who you are, God wants you to know where you're going. And we call that inheritance in the Bible. And man, I hope that you know you're on your way to heaven. And let me tell you tonight, if you don't know you're saved and on your way to heaven, get that settled tonight. Why would you wait? The creator of the universe wants to be with you. But if you don't put your faith and trust in his death and his burial and his resurrection, you will not be with him in eternity. You will not be with him throughout this life. And he longs and wants to be with you. And there's something deep down in our soul that longs to be with him whether we identify it or recognize it or not be with the savior but i'm telling you again if you say hey i've been saved i know i'm saved well then good this sense of belonging to be with him is found in him and him alone and he wants to satisfy that and he says that in verse 24 god i really i want him to be with me i want him to be with me I want them to see my glory, to know me. I, I want them to, to know that I love them and that I want them to love me. He, he wants to fulfill this sense of belonging. But I want you to see secondly, very practical, simple. He wants his followers also to have a sense of balance. You ever lost your balance before? I mean, sure you have. Uh, don't you think it's funny? We, as, as human beings, we all do the same kind of funny things. You ever been walking, walking along and trip on something? And it, your, your inclination, I think this is what we generally do. We trip on something. We can just, I got a pair of shoes that I wear that I feel like I'm tripping in those things all the time. I don't know what it is about. But you can be walking on a flat surface like this, and you just trip, and we always look at the ground. Every human being I know looks at the ground like it's the ground's fault. And then we kind of look around to see if anybody else saw us, and we're looking stupid, you know? We've all lost our balance before. We've all fallen down. We've all taken a spill. We've all gotten out of kilter to one, one way or the other, one uh, side or the other. But there's a man named Carl Miniger. He's a famed psychiatrist. And here's how he defined health. He said health is the vital balance. That's all he said about it, the vital balance. Well, I thought that's a pretty good definition. I'd like to apply that to Christian living. Christian living is just simply maintaining a vital balance through union with Jesus Christ. Have you noticed that in this world, that's what happens to us. I'm talking about God's people. It's very easy to get out of balance, isn't it? Maybe you've heard it explained this way in your church. It's a good way to explain it, that there's a proverbial road and we don't want to go to the right hand or the left. There's a trench or a ditch on either side of the road and you don't want to be in that ditch. And man, I... We live in a world, don't we? And I'm, I'm thankful that you have a seasoned pastor that has stayed by the stuff for years and just stayed the course and stayed straight and forgot what everybody else is doing and just done what God wanted him to do and stayed in the middle of the road. And I'm also thankful you got a young man who's trying to do that too. I think that's a wonderful thing because there are far too many, far too many folks that are uh, on the back end of their ministry and, and, and they're just grouchy and they're, they're on one side of the ditch and then you got a, a group over here, young men, that get mad at those guys and they totally react and go to another side of the ditch. And I'm telling you, all throughout the Bible, Jesus wants us to have a sense of balance about ourselves. 
I was thinking about that this afternoon, about this message. Oh, God, I I really hope that you'll help me fulfill that in my life. I don't want to get caught off on every reaction that everybody's having, every trend that everybody is doing. I just want to keep the focus on Jesus Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in the fullness of his faith. And the things of this world just grow strangely dim as I just keep moving forward and keep my balance in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, where are you getting all of that? Well, the goal of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of his son. And in verse 26, he he talks about, I've declared unto them thy name. Thy name is God's nature. It's it's what he's like. It's who he is. And I want to tell you, there's nothing eccentric or erratic about our Lord. Think about characters in history. I like to read about them. Earlier this year, I read a book uh, about Albert Einstein. I mean, Albert Einstein, his name is synonymous. You say, well, I'm no Einstein. His name is synonymous with being a genius. You know, the guy was so smart and would get so wrapped up about math, he'd forget to put his pants on. I don't like math that much. How many of you would agree, hey, that's great that you can solve the theory of relativity and speak about things that only about 10 people on the planet understand, but how many of you are for putting your pants on? Amen. Thank you, church. That's just out of balance. And there's nothing erratic or, or eccentric about Jesus. In fact, here's, we don't know much about Jesus' adolescence. We don't know much about his childhood. His ministry picks up when he's about 30 years old. And I know that some of these poetic writers like to talk about what Jesus was like as a teenager. All of that is fine and dandy, but none, all of it is just simply speculation. But here's what we do know from the Bible. The Bible says, in Jesus Increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That means physically, mentally, socially, spiritually, Jesus was just perfectly balanced. Don't you love that about Jesus? He could be tough and he could be tenderhearted. Boy, he could look. I personally lean this way a little bit. If I could get out of balance, this is kind of where I'd go. I love Matthew 23. He's going to look at them Pharisees and go, you little punks, I'll tell you something. <laughs> I was like, oh, look, get them, I love it. But don't you love in John chapter 4, as you ladies sang about, that tough Jesus. I mean, this, don't give me this stuff that Jesus was some fair-skinned, pert-plus Italian with you know, blush, blush on his cheeks, kneeling at a stone, praying like this. No, man, he was a carpenter. He had calluses on his hands. He had big forearms. I mean, he kicked them guys out of the temple, kicked the tables over, beat them with whips, and then he sits down on a well and he looks at that woman and he says, oh, lady, let me help you. Because he was tough and he was tender-hearted. Don't you love that he was balanced in zeal and knowledge? Man. I so want to be that way. Man, when I was younger, I didn't have it, I didn't have any, I didn't have two cents of in in my head, man. I mean, I was just nothing but a ball of zeal. Boy, I was gonna win the world to Christ. When I preached, I mean I didn't care what the text was. I was yelling and stomping and spitting and hollering and running all over the place. Woo! I mean, man, I'm just excited. You know what that's called? That's called unbridled zeal. And that's good. But man, as you get a little older, you ought to temper that zeal with a little bit of knowledge. But the danger that I'm having now, becoming a middle-aged man, is you start getting a lot of knowledge and you can start losing your zeal. Jesus was always filled with zeal and knowledge. He was balanced. He's grace and truth. 
He could be bold as a lion and meek as a lamb. He was all of that. You say, where are you getting that out of the text? Look at what he says in verse 25. Oh, righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. Why? Because he's righteous. And he says in verse 26, I have declared in them thy name and will declare it that thy love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. You know what he's balancing there? He's balancing those two dynamics we've already seen in this prayer a little bit. Truth and love. He, he, he says there's a relationship between the two. Your mind grows by taking in the truth. And your heart grows by giving out love. There's a balance there. Do you remember the quote I gave you last night? That truth without love is brutality, but, but love without truth is hypocrisy. Again, I'm just bringing us back to equilibrium. A lot of Christians get those two things out of balance. Truth without love is brutality. Far too many people use truth as a weapon to fight with. I, I, come on, let's be honest. It's revival time, confess. How many of you ever once in a while just like to get in a good argument? All right, thanks for being hard. Uh, that's a lot, lot, lot more. you got a high percentage of that in your church, brother. Maybe it comes from the top, I don't know. But you, I don't mind arguing. I, I do, it's kind of fun sometimes. But you ever met a Christian that's all they ever want to do? All they ever want to do is get on the internet and argue with people. All they ever want to do is walk into the office with their big old family Bible, ready to argue with everybody about everything. That is not what the truth is given for. It's not used as a weapon to argue with. And the truth is not given as a toy to play with. I think a lot of people, they, they, they treat it like a toy to play with. They might not argue about everything, but they become so arrogant and smug. You ever wanted to slap somebody in the name of Jesus? I mean, I've met people, that, and they're right, but they're so arrogant about the truth. Like as if they're the only ones that God has ever revealed truth to. And they're the only ones that are so smart to have figured out what all you other peons haven't figured out. The truth was not given as a, as a weapon to argue with, and it was not given as a toy to play with and be arrogant about. You know what the, what the truth has been given to us for? It's been given to us as a, as a tool to build people up with. And as you come to this church and you go to Sunday school, your teacher ought to be equipping you with truth that is going to help you raise your children, going to help you manage your finances, going to help you balance your attitude and get your act together. The truth is not given to argue about, and the truth is not given to toy with and play with. It's given to build us up in our lives. But we also got to have love. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Love is an amazing power. Love is the greatest motivator. And isn't that what Paul said? I'm constrained by his love to do what I do. But love without truth is not as effective as it could be. And I, I, here's what I was thinking about this point. God wants us to have a sense of balance. Our world, know, the world in which we live in, knows very little about either two of those things. How much truth does our world really know? They don't know much about the gospel. Have you noticed today, people have no common sense whatsoever about raising their kids? Or is that just in my neck of the woods? The other day I was at my little boy, my little boy's 10, he just turned 11. 
He was at his basketball practice, and there's a little boy. He's on a phone. He's playing some game. I mean, loud, making all these noises. And his dad from across the way, I mean, could hear this thing as loud. His dad said to his wife, said, tell him, make him turn that down. And she, uh, uh, this is a direct quote. She turned and looked at him. She said, I can't. I can't. He's four. I want to say, I can. I mean, I love it. Some big old man says, I can't get my kid to go to bed. How big's your four-year-old? I mean, people don't have any kind of common sense. They don't know much about the truth. I mean, I, I scratch my head sometimes about the way people treat themselves and how they interact in marriage. We, we, we're, we're desperately lacking the truth. We're desperately lacking in our world in love. We have totally confused lust for love. We, we are looking for love in all the wrong places. But good grief, the Beatles even knew you couldn't buy love, but we're always trying to do it. But here's, here's just what I'm saying as I come to a close here. Jesus prays for his believers. He tells them, he says, I know the world doesn't know anything about these things, but I do. And I've made it possible for my people to enjoy both of them. And I do pray that this church would be a balanced place, filled with balanced people, a balance of, of evangelism and discipleship, a, a balance of love and truth and grace and truth, of zeal and knowledge. I, I pray that you would have great balance because that's what Jesus prayed for us. In this case, he prayed for truth and love, for righteousness and love. He said, I want my people to be fulfilled and have a sense of belonging be fulfilled and have a sense of balance. So let me ask you a few questions tonight. Question number one is, do you have a healthy sense of belonging? Hey, are you here and are you saved? Are you? If you're here tonight and you're not saved, quit messing around. Trust the Lord tonight. It's the greatest thing you could ever do. To be in the security and care with Him, belong to Him, Maybe you're here tonight and you, you are saved, but are you spending time with him? You belong to him, but are you with him? Maybe you don't belong to this church. Maybe you need to talk. Everybody needs a church home and a church family. Talk to the pastor. Maybe this is where you need to put some roots down and say, I belong to Fellowship Baptist Church. Question number two, is there balance in your life? Are you growing in truth? Are you learning His glory and His name? Are you growing in love? Are you growing in love for Him? Are you growing in love for His people? You know, all of life, the older I get, I learn is a balancing act. It just is. If you ride bicycles, you've ever ridden a bicycle, you know how to ride a bicycle, you don't just hold those handles. You're constantly giving a series of balance, constantly. You know what, sometimes in my life I lean too far on the truth and I'm not showing enough love and i got to get it right. And sometimes I might be too sappy and too lovey and, oh, i gotta, I got to take a stand. i got to do what's right. Sometimes I might fill my head full of facts and truth and knowledge and, boy, my zeal is waning and I might have to... Maybe tonight you'd recognize, hey, I'm a little out of balance. I need to get that thing in balance. Our Lord was balanced. The more I'm around him, the more I'll be like him. 
I guess as we conclude this revival meeting, I just hope most of us will take a good look at our life. And we'll say, do I really love the Lord? And I think most everybody in this room will say, oh, I do. Do I love Him more? Do I desire to love Him more? I hope we can apply some of these things to our life. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting me preach a little bit.